Thanks for joining us today. One of the things that we have to take a look at whenever we are dealing with discussing any of the topics that we're covering here or any of the topics that you might be discussing with your friends, family, coworkers, colleagues, or for those of your students with your professors or teachers is what type of evidence do we have to support the positions that we're taking? Why is it important to understand the strength of the evidence that we have within any of our arguments? Why is it important to understand the strength of evidence being presented that is counter to our opinions? One of the things that we have to remember is that we're constantly being bombarded with various ideas, various opinions about all of the topics that we like to discuss. And it's important to understand that just because we have opinions about things doesn't necessarily mean that those things are true. And so let's go ahead and let's take a, a brief time here to discuss why it's important to understand the strength of evidence being presented to us and how that strength of evidence is important when we're attempting to formulate our conclusions, our ideas, and our opinions about the topics that we like to have conversations about, as I hope that my opinion is true, but the facts might not back up my opinions. And we need to be flexible in our abilities to understand and perceive what is factually true. So let's talk about the strength of evidence as relates to our conversations pertaining to the human body and our overall ability to perform at optimal levels and have health. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! So why is this such an issue? Why is it that we have to worry about strength of evidence that comes into play when we're talking about how the human body works, or overall human body health? What is it that we have to be concerned about? The problem is, is that we like to try to simplify the way in which the body functions, both as an educator as well as clinicians. There's an attempt to, and I hate to use the word, but to dumb down the discussion. The problem when we attempt to dumb down the discussion is that we attempt to overly simplify an excessively complex issue. But at the same time, we want you to be able to embrace and understand the complexity. What are the responses that we see within the body to the various types of stresses that we place the body under throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, and throughout the years? What is it that we are doing to the body that's going to somehow either lead to improvement or cost the body overall health? It's a complexity that at times, it's very difficult to convey what is actually occurring and what the actual meaning of what the evidence that we happen to have gathered means. This is especially true when we are dumbing down this information, when we are trying to make it as simple as we possibly can be, under the false illusion of what Occam's razor actually tells us. And so what Occam's razor is telling us is that the explanation that takes the least number of logical steps is the most correct answer. But the problem is, is that we have conveyed this Occam's razor issue as the simplest answer is the correct answer. And it's not the simplest answer. It's the answer that takes the least number of leaps of logic, which will be the correct answer. And so unfortunately, what ends up happening is that too often we convey incorrect information or we convey information in a way that doesn't provide the, the actual understanding of what's going on. And part of this is because we have to show 
our evidence, our understanding in a manner by which we are not talking in the same language. There's a, a book out there. Uh, if I understood what you were saying, I wouldn't have this look on my face. I'm, I'm paraphrasing the title of the book. And what it's basically stated is that us as scientists, us as clinicians, us as scientific educators tend to do a very poor job conveying the terminologies that we want to convey. One of the most often conveyed misnomers in terms of terminology that's out there is the word theory. And so if you go and you do any of the internet searching for theory, it's going to tell you it's a guess. But if we talk about theories in life sciences and sciences in general, what everybody talks about in the world as a theory, we as a scientist would call a hypothesis. But even then, that's not even correct. Theories, scientifically, are the explanations that we have based off of the bounty of evidence to show that something is actually true. It's the underlying rationale for why things occur. The hypothesis that everybody talks about as being a uh, another word for theory isn't really what we think about in terms of the hypothesis in the scientific method. When we start talking about hypotheses scientifically, what we're talking about is we're talking about our deductively reasoned explanation for why something's occurring. That deductively reasoned explanation for why something's occurring allows me to establish an experiment, but it doesn't give me a conclusion. It doesn't allow me to say this is why something's occurring. It allows me to speculate. It allows me to, to say, okay, this is based off of what I understand is going on right now. This is the reason for that to occur. And so we go see the doctor because we have some ailment. And the doctor says, okay, we're going to try this medicine. This medicine, in terms of the evidence we have so far, says that it should cure whatever the ailment happens to be. And so we take the medicine, but it doesn't work for us. And so we think, oh, well, the doctor's wrong. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to do my own research, put quotes around that. And I'm going to try to see what else I could possibly do to relieve the ailment. One of the things we have to remember in this is that the hypothesis that we're drawing is based off of what is the normalized response within the normal curve. That's the bell curve that we remember from our our schooling. That two-thirds to 90% of the population should fall in. But we have to remember that everybody's going to respond within a continuum of responses. And so when we miss our understanding of that, we automatically assume that the evidence isn't supportive because what we're seeing for ourselves isn't what we have an expectation for in terms of the hypothesis, the explanation for why something should work, should not work, happens, does not happen, without understanding that everybody's going to fall somewhere on that normal curve. And by falling somewhere on that normal curve, We will have full responders all the way to one end of the normal curve. Non-responders, those are people who don't respond whatsoever, on the other side of the curve. And then everybody else somewhere in between. And when we stop for a second and think about that, it kind of negates that idea of a message that is oversimplified of take four Advil and it will alleviate your pain. Thinking that, okay, that makes sense. That's, That's common sense. But that common sense may not be true because we may be at some point within the pain cycle where if I do take the four anti-inflammatories, I get alleviation of my symptoms. My symptoms go away. 
I'm not in pain. But if I'm at the peak of my pain cycling, taking those four anti-inflammatories isn't going to do anything for me. And so what we have to do when we start looking at this idea about what is the strength of evidence that we have within conversations pertaining to how the human body functions and how overall health is developed, what we have to remember is, is that what we perceive as being correct may not actually be correct based off of the fact that we're dealing with single viewpoints. That single viewpoint idea leads to a falsehood. You can put quotes around falsehood here. And the falsehood that we're looking at is the idea about the causal relationship between things that may not have causal relationships between them. And that's because the way in which our brain functions is our brain is constantly trying to equate something leads to something because something happened. And so A leads to B because A occurred. And so we get this false analogy that gets developed because we're trying to equate two things together. And that leads to the lowest level of evidence that we have available to us, which is the anecdote, the anecdotal evidence, the what I see happened must be the reason for why it's happening without taking a step back. The problem with with the anecdotal evidence is that it is excessively subjective. It's what we want to be true because of that false analogy that's being set up. But the problem with that is, is that we become entrenched and we hold on to those positions based off of the, the antidotes. And those antidotes develop into a belief system in, in some cases about choices and about rationality as it relates to why we do things while we don't do things. And it's those why we do things while we don't do things that develops into lifestyles and lifestyle choices that in regards to the development of health leads to the non-communicable setup for disease prevention. And the problem is, is that when we're constantly saying, okay, this is why this happened, we start to view things through a bias slant. And please tune into the bias discussion that we had previously. That bias slant leads to confirmation bias and cherry picking logical fallacies and uh, Texas sharpshooter logical fallacies where I'm not going to be willing to look at the preponderance of the evidence, all of the evidence. I'm simply going to look at what evidence I want to look at. And when all I do is look at the evidence that I want to look at, I don't get the whole view of what's going on. And so unfortunately, when we become so entrenched with our ideas that that belief system about what is best comes into play, we will not allow for empirical validation of anything that is anti to against my own belief system. And it's that fervent belief which gets manifested within many of the discussions, I guess you can call them debates, that is going to occur around how we can utilize various types of lifestyles in the prevention of many of the non-communicable diseases that we have currently within the medical fields that we look at in terms of trying to prevent based off of the economics of healthcare, at least within the United States, that's spreading globally based off of how healthcare is becoming uh, monetized and outside of the social welfare networks, which is a story for a whole other day. And so what ends up happening is that when we become entrenched 
unable to engage in honest conversations about the pros and the cons about the choices that can be made. And what is up happening is, is that that entrenchment spreads. And it, it spreads because we support, we monetize individuals or groups or organizations or companies that further what my belief system happens to be. And we punish other systems of beliefs, other organizations that do not support me, other individuals that do not support me. And the support that we're trying to get stems from the, the antidotes that help develop my hypothesis. So, so antidotes necessarily aren't bad things. It's just that we can't use the antidotes as my conclusion because they're reliant upon subjective measure. If I want to have a little bit stronger of, an, of a bit of evidence, I need to start to go from being subjective to being objective. And the objectivity that we start to develop comes from looking at the experts, whether those experts are educated or not. And I'm not talking about going to school or not going to school when, it, when I'm talking about educated. The educated expert is the expert that has worked, studied, Research continues to study, continues to research in a field. And when we become experts within our fields, we become experts in very small niches. We tend not to be experts to everything. None of us, regardless of what some people might say about others, knows everything. But when you're an expert in a field, you can convey information to others that they would not otherwise be able to understand or be able to grasp. And when it comes to trying to discuss how the human body functions, what it means to be healthy, how to establish health, all of those factors, one of the problems that comes into play when we start looking at this entrenchment is that we cast aside experts in the field that don't have our same ism, our same belief system about the antidote that we want to hold to be true. And the problem is, is that experts are susceptible to those same isms. And what is up happening is that the experts will start to have the same kind of discussion, where they will go about doing the same type of logical fallacies that everybody else does. They'll cherry pick, they'll confirm bias the selections, they'll text a sharpshooter, the evidence that, that is there, in order to support their, their claims. And the problem is, is that when we have multiple experts all relying upon my expert opinion on something based off of my anecdotal evidence and my small bit of objective study, we end up having confusion taking place within the populace, within everybody, within the population, because we don't know what's true anymore. And the reason why we get this confusion, the reason why we get this inability to determine what is best, what we have to do is we have to take a step back and we have to think about, okay, Why is it that this person A, Dr. A, is saying that this is the best, while person B, Dr. B, is saying this is the best? What is the logical train of thought that would guide the professional, the scientist, the layperson to follow that bit of advice? And this is where we have to start looking at how we go about doing research how we go about formulating consensus amongst researchers, amongst scientists, amongst healthcare professionals, 
And it all starts with a simple idea. And that simple idea is follow the evidence. And when we say follow the evidence, what we're saying is we're saying don't cherry pick. Don't Texas sharpshooter the evidence. Don't follow a confirmational biased perspective. Look at what is out there in in whole. Formulate the hypothesis. Formulate your stated expectation for why something might be occurring, why a drug or a supplement or a diet or an exercise program or uh, a sleep pattern or anything else that we happen to have out there. Why might that be the best? And have that explanation there. But then actually look at what the research happens to be. And take all of the findings, take all the findings. Once again, this is something that is very difficult for someone that has not been scientifically trained to do. And I understand that. And we'll get to how you can go about looking at some of the research that's out there to figure out what is the most accurate, what is the most evidentially true evidence that we have. And when we're out there looking at the evidence, we're out there looking at what's there. One of the things that a good scientist does is that when they're following the evidence and the evidence is overwhelming enough to show that they are incorrect in their thinking, the good scientist is not afraid to admit that their thinking was incorrect. We have changed our thought process on a number of things based off of the ability to grasp better understanding of what's going on. But the ability to grasp the ability to grasp the better understanding means that we have to be willing to admit that we can be wrong and accept that we can be wrong. That's the key difference between the scientific approach and the pseudoscientific approach. The pseudoscientific approach tends to uh, be a vocal advocate for the, the antidotes. And that's because what they do is they set out to do their research in such a way to prove their hypothesis their explanation to be true, as opposed to doing the experimentation, doing the research, and determining based off of what evidence that I have there, how that evidence is analyzed, is my hypothesis correct or is my hypothesis incorrect? And this is where, as a scientist and as a healthcare provider, you have to take a step back. And you have to utilize scientific principles. And for those of you that are not a scientist and not a healthcare provider, this is where you have to understand the scientific method. And in the scientific method, we're basically trying to investigate and develop responses to three distinct, three distinct things we're trying to look at. What do we know? What do we think we know? And what has been proven? The pseudoscientist, the misinformation presenter, ignores that first question, what do we know, and ignores that last question, what has been proven, and focuses more on the what do we think we know. And when we simply look at what do we think we know, we're unable to grasp the complexity. And not only are we unable to grasp the complexity, we're not able to understand why things work and why things don't work. When we're trying to understand the evidence being presented to us, we're trying to understand the other person's point of view, or we're trying to understand our own point of view. The first thing we have to understand is what is the strength of the argument 
that is being presented. That is, how was the conclusion reached? And does the information accurately reflect the findings of the empirical evidence? And this is where we have to be very careful. As an author, as a, as a publishing person, as a researcher, I want people to read my information. But the problem is, is that in order for me to get my story out there, I have to make headlines mean something. But at the same time, I have to make headlines want to be clicked in this clickable world. And what that means is that I want to make sure that, the, that what I'm presenting isn't just clickbait, isn't just me making up some interesting headline for you to click on that doesn't offer any insight to it. And it becomes very problematic because there's so much information out there. And there's so much information out there, and we're constantly publishing new scientific articles, which is why it becomes very difficult for the population that doesn't understand how consensus comes about to take a look at, well, last week science said this, and this week science says that, and then this week science says this, and then and there's this constant kind of what looks like a seesaw battle taking place. And that's because what's getting put out into the, the media world is that clickbait. It's where we're giving you some information, but not enough information for you to be able to draw a conclusion. And this is where we have to start evaluating the evidence that gets put out into the mass media, not just the evidence that gets put into the scientific journals. Because a lot of times, scientists and researchers and healthcare professionals tend to spend their world looking at what do the journals say, what does the scientific world say about stuff, as opposed to what does the rest of the populace get a hold of. And so one of the things we have to start looking at is we start looking at, okay, where does the information that gets put into the media come from? Well, it comes from the scientists. It comes from the researchers. It comes from the health clinics. It comes from the medical centers. But it's not coming from the scientists because, as I was saying with the, the book, if, if I knew what you were saying, I wouldn't have this look on my face. We don't do a very good job conveying that information, but we do have PR people that do a very good job conveying that information. And so we have these findings coming out from a study. And the PR person picks up that information and releases a press release. And it takes the scientific terminology and puts it into common language. It's going to take the scientific terminology and put it into common language. And when it gets put into common language, sometimes the meaning gets lost. And that gets problematic because what's happening is that story gets picked up by the news. It gets picked up. It gets transmitted. It gets translated. It gets retranslated. It gets picked up. It gets translated. It gets retranslated. It gets picked up by bloggers. It gets picked up by internet sources. It gets picked up and picked up and picked up and picked up. And what ends up happening is that what we find in the laboratory setting, we find in the health clinic setting, we find in these studies, isn't what necessarily you read about in the press. And then there's a second problem with that. And the second problem with that is that everybody thinks that, well, if we have one study that says this happens, then this is the only thing that can happen. And that's not how science works. And when we start looking at the evidence that's coming about, what we have to start looking at is we have to start looking at not just one study saying something's happening, but multiple studies saying something's happening. When we start reporting all of these findings and saying, oh, well, one study shows this, but then when we try to repeat that study and it doesn't show the same thing, 
but it shows something entirely different, then we have to start thinking about, okay, why did that one study show something? Whereas all the other studies don't show that same thing. And so when we start looking at the preponderance of evidence, what we have to do is we start looking, okay, we start with the, the, the anecdotal evidence, the evidence of what I personally see and perceive, my subjective feelings about stuff through the, the poor causal relationships that my brain is trying to make, which leads to my hypothesis, which leads to an individual study. Now, the individual study can be done in terms of scientific research as a case study. That is where we do one treatment on one individual and write up, write up the findings about what happened to that one individual. The problem with that is, is that that one individual is going to be somewhere on that normal curve. And it may not be the same place as the majority of the individuals. They may be on that one side of the normal curve. We may do another type of study, which is sometimes referred to as a cohort study. And so a cohort study is where we get groups of people. And when we do cohort studies, what we tend to do is we tend to do a treatment group and a non-treatment group, sometimes referred to as a control group or a placebo group. And what we try to do is we try to see, okay, is there differences between the cohorts? And we might find some differences between cohorts. But just because we find differences within one group of cohorts doesn't mean we're going to find differences in all groups of cohorts. And so one of the things that we start doing when we start seeing more and more and more studies looking at various aspects of overall health and about how distinct things within the human body works is we start looking at multiple cohorts and we start saying, okay, do we see the same thing across cohort studies? Because one of the problems with cohorts is that they're they're pigeonholed to the groups within the cohorts. And so we might hear about all of these uh, weight loss drug stories and how group that got the weight loss drug lost significantly more weight than the group that did not take the weight loss drug. And we think, oh, well, since the group that took the weight loss drug significantly lost more weight than the group that did not take the weight loss drug, it must mean that the weight loss drug works better than not taking the weight loss drug. But what we don't pick up in the stories in the news, and we don't pick up unless we actually dig into the various types of cohorts within the studies, is that everybody within the study lost weight, which is the goal for the weight loss programs. But then what happened after the end of the study? Because when we start taking drugs, one of the things we have to remember is that the physiology of our body is going to get, a, is going to get changed based off of taking that drug. And so this is where we have to step up the evidence from that cohort. And there's two ways to step up the evidence from the cohort. One is to get a larger cohort. And by getting a larger cohort, you're able to get outside of a specialized population. You're able to get into the general population. And we're able to get into the general population. We're able to say, okay, instead of looking at a very small population that had this result, what happens to the larger population? And do we see the same type of result coming in? The problem with the cohort study, even if we have small cohort and large cohort, is that it's susceptible to the bad design implementation that comes into play into how those cohorts get developed. And so one of the ways that we can kind of alleviate one of those issues in terms of having the good cohort and the bad cohort, particularly when we're trying to see, okay, if we do this intervention, is it going to be good or not? Is to randomly assign cohorts into my treatment group and my non-treatment group. Because what we do understand is that based off of human physiology and the combination of how our brain 
modify some of our behavioral modifications, which changes our physiological functions, is that if I think I'm getting something that might work, my body's going to react as if I'm getting something that, that will work. And so when we start looking at that significant difference between groups, in order to understand what that significant actually means, what we have to do is we have to look at larger populations of studies or a larger population within a study. And when we start looking at larger populations within, within the study, or if we start looking at larger populations of studies, that, that, so the difference between those two statements is one study has a large, larger number of people within the study, or we start looking at multiple studies that are all looking at the same exact thing. What we're able to do is we're able to get a larger bit of cohort, a larger grouping. That larger grouping becomes a better generalizable population when we have what's referred to as a random population or a randomly controlled population study. That is, every person that enters into the study, every person that volunteers to be part of the study, has a chance to either be part of getting the treatment or has a chance of not getting the treatment. And when we have that randomization taking place, we have a little bit better control about what the findings tell us, which becomes important because when we start doing the mathematical analysis of what's going on, we want to make sure that we're able to generalize our analysis, generalize our conclusions to populations outside of the study groups, outside of the people who are willing to do the treatments, outside of the people who are willing to come into the lab to allow us to study a physiological phenomenon. And so when we're able to get that larger population, we're able to get that randomly controlled populations, we're able to increase the significance of what our significant difference actually means. So take a step back. What does significant difference actually mean? And this is where, oh, it's significant. Well, not necessarily. Significant difference is a mathematical thing. It's a statistical thing. And what it's telling me is that I have less than a 5% chance of choosing the wrong hypothesis. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that group A was better than group B or group B was better than group A or group A and group B were different in anything else than a 5% random chance that they were not what they were. That's what significant difference means. And so when we start looking at treatments, what we have started to do recently is look at what at another type of mathematical analysis, which is what's referred to as effect size. And that is the noted difference that we see between populations and how does that equate to what we would see within the general population. And so if we have a good study design, that means that we have a study design that is set out to test the hypothesis, not prove the hypothesis, and we set out in such a way to do a good cohorting, a good grouping of volunteers for the studies, and we set out in such a way to do correct analysis, that is where we don't look at what is the significant differences between groupings, but we look at what is the effect size of doing treatments. We're able to get a better understanding of what's going on and eliminate some of the biasing within the evidence that we happen to be looking at. But that's not necessarily the best yet. We're stepping up. And so we started with the antidotes, and then we went to the case studies. And now we're in the cohorts. Now there's a problem with some of the cohorting, and one of the problems with the cohorting is that sometimes we like to study physiology 
in animals and not in humans. And part of that is the ethics that we have in terms of doing studies on humans. And part of that is timing. Humans have very long lifespans, whereas some animals have very short lifespans. And it's easier to see things take place over the lifespan of an animal versus seeing something happen over the lifespan of a human. But the problem with the animal and the problem with other non-human, what we call models, those are the things that we study, is that they don't act like humans. And so we'll hear or read about this compound or this substance causing some sort of issue, some sort of metabolic issue, some sort of physiological issue, some sort of health issue. That issue comes into play and that issue is seen when we look at it in the animal model, when we look at it in the cell model. But if you look at how it's released to the media, how it's picked up and how it's talked about, it's talked about as if it's a guaranteed thing to happen in humans. And that's not always the case. Just because something happens in an animal doesn't does not necessarily mean it's going to happen in humans. Just because it happens in humans doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen in animals. And that goes into that ability to generalize my findings to the human population, to everybody, by everybody I mean every human on the planet. And so as we start working through our strength of evidence, and so antidotes aren't very strong. My expert opinion, which basically is coming from antidotes and maybe some studying and previous knowledge about the topic, depending upon how educated I am in that field. We then have our case studies and our cohorts. We then have our random controlled. Now, the best type of random control that we can get in terms of cohorts is what's referred to as the self-controlled, sometimes referred to as a crossover study, if you read the, the media reports, or if you click on the link to the actual scientific journal, because a lot of the uh, internet media have been getting a lot better about linking to the to the journals. And I understand the journals are sometimes very difficult to read because, once again, we do a very good job communicating with each other, but not the best job communicating with everybody else. The randomized crossover or self-controlled study, what ends up happening, this, this is where we can actually figure out, is it about what's happening or is it about something else? Because the person's going to act like their own control group. And so what ends up happening is that we end up randomly selecting the order by which things occur. We involve what's referred to as washout periods within that study, where we allow the person to physiologically return back to normal or relative normal. And then we simply do the other treatment. And then we find out, okay, is there a difference between the treatment or the no treatment, understanding that the persons within the study were both in the treatment group and in the control group. And so that is the probably the best type of cohort that we can possibly get. But we still haven't reached our pinnacle yet. And that's because we haven't built a consensus viewpoint. And once again, this is where we do a very bad job conveying what does it mean to have a consensus. And when we're talking about a consensus in scientific vernacular and scientific discussions, in health discussions, we're not talking about a democratic consensus. We're not talking about, let's take a poll and see what people vote yes or no on. The consensus is what does 95 plus percent of the evidence state to be true. And it goes into a whole host of very high-end statistical analysis done usually under specific analytical processing and review processing, referred to as a systematic review 
and meta-analysis. And what we're attempting to do when we do the highest level of strength within the evidence that we're building, in building the consensus, what we do is we pick a specific question to answer within all of the possible questions that relate to that one observation. We then do a searching of all of the studies that have ever been conducted or that we can get a hold of that have been conducted on that one question. We then compile the evidence that is been reported. And then based off of how we do the meta-analysis, we will either look at what is the general trend taking place within the evidence Or we'll do what's referred to as a pooling of the evidence. That is where we take all of the various studies and we will pool them together to form a super huge population. Because once again, the bigger the population we get, the more accurate we are to the normal curve for the entire population. And then what we do is we say, okay, what was not the average response, but what is the confidence interval for responses? That is, what is the 95% range for responses between doing something or not doing something as relates to the treatment effects for trying to be healthy? What is the responses, not the responses to something happening physiologically, hormone action, nutrient availability, response to stress place on the body? What is the 95% range for responses? And what we do is we pick one side of the argument to be the experimental side, one side of the argument to be the control side. And it's based off of what our hypothesis happens to be in in an attempt to answer the question that we posed in developing the systematic review and the meta-analysis. And this is where we're able to apply all of the findings that we have to allow us to determine what we should believe or should not believe. If all of the responses say yes to hypothesis, to our hypothesis that treatment A works and treatment B does not work. That means that all of the studies show a confidence interval on the effect size that favors using treatment A versus using treatment B. Then we can stipulate that treatment A works and is more effective than treatment B. That doesn't mean treatment B is not effective, and it doesn't mean that treatment B doesn't work. It just means that treatment A is more effective than treatment B. Because once again, everybody's going to have a normal curve that they're going to fall under. And what it's telling me is that out of all of the studies that we have and out of the generalization we can make to everybody across the world, 95% of the people will respond more effectively to a treatment by treatment A than by treatment B. Or if we're looking at hormone responses, what it tells me is that 95% of the time, the hormone is going to cause this to take place. And what this does is this allows me to follow an inductive pattern of reasoning that allows me to infer a conclusion about the phenomenon, about the drug, about the lifestyle intervention, about the lifestyle choice that frees me from my what I hope is true to what does the evidence show to be true. And this is where we get to what allows us to establish evidence-based practices and evidence-based criteria or an evidence-based understanding of how the human body works. And what is happening is that we will do these types of meta-analytical studies and do these types of systematic reviews for a whole host of health-related questions, for a whole host of physiological-related questions. And what it does is it allows us to develop that consensus. And once again, the consensus is what does the evidence show across all of the studies 
in a non-selective population to be true. And so when we're looking at my strength of evidence, one of the things we have to understand is just because I want something to be true doesn't necessarily mean it is true. Just because I see something respond in a certain way doesn't mean that everybody is going to respond in a certain way. And we have to understand that when we start looking at and discussing how do I go about being healthy or how does the body function, understanding that observational reports about what worked for me or what I did that we were constantly being fed through multiple media streams is not the most strong in terms of the evidentiary support. The problem comes into how do I go about reading through the more scientific, empirically objective evidence that I have? Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to get rid of that post hoc ergo prepare hoc fallacy, the logical fallacy of conclusion based off of it happened last, so it must be true, or the logical fallacies that come about through cherry picking of evidence or Texas sharpshootering the evidence or confirmational bias in my selection of evidence, the intrinsic fallacies that we tend to hold onto when our isms are challenged, when our expert opinion is challenged. When we take a step back and we start looking at the wholeness of the evidence, what we're able to do is we're able to formulate a better understanding of how does my body work? What does it mean to be healthy? How can I go about being healthy? How can I go about helping others in my family be healthy? Understanding that just because I want this to be true doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be true. Just because it works for me doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for everybody else. When we start or when we are discussing all of these issues, what we have to be willing to do is accept that I might be wrong. And for those of us who have expertise within a part of the field of health or part of the field of understanding how the body works, understand that we only understand what we understand. We only know what we know, and we have to be willing to go to and draw from the evidence that's out there to help us understand what we don't understand and know what we don't know. And so how can I go about reading the information to better grasp what is being presented within the scientific literature? And we will discuss that in a different podcast. Well, thanks for listening. Hopefully you got a little bit out of the discussion as it relates to strength of evidence and what is the strongest bit of evidence we have versus what is the weakest bit of evidence we have. Please make sure to like and subscribe if you are enjoying what we're putting out. Please share what we're putting out with your friends and family. If you have any ideas or questions about the idea about strength of evidence, please drop us a line. Please stay tuned for our discussion about how do I go about reading the scientific literature to better understand and better inform myself on building of a consensus viewpoint.